Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Wait for it. Wait, wait. The tension's building, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. When is he going to open this pot? Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. What was it Hitchcock said? It's not the bang. It's the anticipation of the bang. That is absolutely right. We still haven't started this podcast, but the tension is unbearable. All right, it's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Welcome back. You can clearly get a little bit of a spoiler as to where we're going to go today. Not to mention you probably read the description before you downloaded the show. So I was just thinking Spoiler alert, there goes the tension. Let it all out of the balloon. I thought that was a suitable way to open the podcast anyway, though, even if all of that was already known coming in. so Just kind of hit me, I guess. Yeah. I'm Dave Brooks. I'm Joel Hoover. We're brought to you by the Bemidji Theater. Those of you that are listening from far away, the what, the who, the huh, probably couldn't you know see the word Bemidji and spell it and uh, pronounce it correctly if you weren't from the area, and that's okay. A lot of people even from not too far away call it Bemidji on occasion. You at least know one of those now, how to pronounce. Bemidji Theater, CEC Theaters, they're right off of Highway 2 between Bemidji and Wilton. Bemidji, by the way, the very first city that the Mississippi River flows through. So for faraway guests, there's a little something-something. Great place to go see a show. Uh, still kind of that new theater smell. after They redid everything this last spring. and uh, uh, New screens, new sound system, the new seating. About half the capacity, but very, very comfortable capacity. So go see a show this fall, this beyond. A great spot to go say hi to uh, Missy and crew at the Bemidji CEC Theaters. That's right. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a little bit since Dave and I have gotten to record one. Busy. Yeah, we've been very busy. Fall gets to be that way. I'm busy with my usual stuff of calling sporting events. Dave has had a lot of things going on, too, so we're glad to be able to be rejoining you today. That's for... the polite way of Hoof saying, I, I don't know what he's doing with his time. He says he's too busy, but... No, it's, <laughs> it's busy. You are a family man, so there are a lot of things that go on. There's so that, too, yeah. We are happy to be back with you for Rick and Nick Talk Flicks and ready to hang out and talk about thrillers and suspense films today. That will be coming up. As far as current events are concerned, unfortunately... Strike. The strikes continue. Strikes, plural, rolling on. And there seems to be no end in sight as the the sides are just entrenched. The picket lines are fully drawn. And it's been months now, Dave. I mean, you alluded to it back when the strikes first started that this could be a lengthy one, lengthy couple of strikes ahead Lo and behold, that has been the case. It doesn't look like there's an end. They come together every so often, they talk, and then they give a press conference about how insulted they were by the other side. I don't think this is going to end, and it's already having a noticeable impact. Um, even on the fall schedule, we ta- we do when we did the fall uh, preview, 
we kind of let people know all of this is subject to change. And already we've got a brand new big movie that's not so much a movie as it is a big screen documentary. The Taylor Swift documentary is going to be coming out this fall, which hadn't been announced prior to that. It's already adjusting the schedule. But think about what's involved in that. There's no script. There's no actors. You're just documenting a huge, amazing tour, by the way. But they need to get something big ready for the big screen. They're starting to take some things off of the schedule or thinking about doing more and maybe bumping them into a time slot where if they don't start moving things, there isn't going to be anything because they're not making anything new. So the Taylor Swift documentary on the big screen, I don't know if it's going to be beyond AMC theaters, which are found in bigger cities. So I don't know if that means it's going to come to Bemidji. It's kind of an exclusive deal kind of thing, but it's going to be measurable. It's already got ticket sales in advance that are already breaking all kinds of records. So there is that. Another movie, notable one that has been delayed, Dune 2. That one has been moved back as well due to the strikes. And that is among several movies that other movies that had not totally been completed that were a little bit further down the line outside of the realm of what you and I had previewed in our fall preview. There are others that are already getting kicked back due to the strike because they just have shut down production slash work on it has just come to a halt in various ways behind the scenes. I haven't heard in movies like Dune Part 2, was it moved simply because they needed to do reshoots and they can't? Was there something they needed to adjust? They can't write an adjustment, let alone film an adjustment? Or is it simply, guys, I don't know what day it's finally going to come out. Let's just assume it's springtime and spring's looking kind of parse. We got to put something in there. Well, what if we move Dune from the fall into the spring and plug a hole? You know, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this can happen, but yeah. it's all strike related. So this is an ongoing thing. We'll um, we'll do our part to keep you posted, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Some of it, though, is ambiguous, but stay tuned. Again, with that last episode that we did regarding the preview there's maybe going to be some more changes afoot that will be coming as a result of the strike going on. Would not be surprised. Yeah. So anyway, it's a bummer, but at the same time, it's also rather important as far as how movies have been created and the people who are a part of making it happen. There's a lot of things that need to be addressed, as we have talked about in the past here on the podcast. So, But we can still talk about movies that have come out that maybe you've missed or maybe you'd like to uh, see and hear the, he- the heap of praise on them that we're about to shovel out. Uh, maybe horror movies, as we start getting approaching uh, Halloween season, eh, maybe that's a little too much. Too many blood and guts, and they don't want that, but they kind of want that tension that you can get there. Thrillers and suspense movies, and um, yeah, absolutely. And some of these... You know, if it crossed too much into horror territory, we might give it a wink and a nudge, but it's not suspenseful enough. And even action movies, some of those, one or two might kind of overlap, but it was notable because of, you know, the way that the story came together and not so much the action sequences. So there could be a little bit of overlap, and that's one of the things that makes thrillers so much fun. And that's where we've talked about horror movies in the past. We've talked about them around does Halloween my, my in the past in Halloween little... movies. And and Dave, this time of year is is your favorite. You've mm. talked about it. You love this time of year. You love the feeling that comes with it, the chills, the horror movies that, that also come with this time of year as well. But that's where the idea for this episode came was there are people out there, like you said, who just don't really watch as many horror movies. I watch some here and there but i i've never been that big into the genre never watched it all that much not as much as you do and i know there are a lot of people who are just like 
I really don't like horror movies. It's just, it's too much visually, viscerally, as far as the feeling that comes with that. But that's where thrillers and suspense movies, and those two words kind of go hand in hand with each other, that genre fills a really great middle ground, it feels like, between the harder edge of horror movies and movies that maybe have too soft of a touch for some people. Depends. In a lot of cases, you might be talking about horror light, but what we talked about, there's an overlap Probably one of the best thriller movies ever, and it's on the top of most lists that you might look at, is definitely also a horror movie, and it checks all those boxes, and no spoiler alert as to where we're going to eventually get to talking about some of these, The Silence of the Lambs. It's absolutely a horror movie, but it absolutely functions as one of the best thrillers and suspenseful movies ever. So is it is it one or the other? Yes, it is. It's both. We'll so, get to that. So we have lists, both of us. We do. do. Dave has a list of movies. I have a list of criteria. So let's talk about criteria. I'm with you. For thrillers and suspense movies and go piece by piece here. There was a word that you brought up when you and I were discussing this episode today, Dave. And this word ties together a lot of what I'm going to run down here. What was that word? I'm trying to remember. Was it that time you were staring at me? Why are you staring? That's not the word, though. What was the word? The word was tension. Tension. There we go. Yes. Why tension, Dave? You could cut it with a knife across the table. You can. It's a necessary ingredient. And one of the things that really creates the tension is, well, there's not any one thing. There's a lot of different things. The way it's shot, camera angles, lighting, uh, composition of the shot, plus there's the story, the tension, the character development. You have to care about these characters or you don't care when they're put in jeopardy. And there's no tension. If Inception was, you know, you really didn't have these characters defined. You didn't care about whether or not he ever got to get back and see his kids or any of that with any of these characters. There are no stakes. It wouldn't matter. It all creates tension, the dialogue. You want good chemistry as actors between one another, or maybe in some ways, depending on what the story is, maybe you want like an animosity. You almost wonder if the actors and the characters might both punch one another, you know, during the scene. And then as soon as they yell cut, they just keep punching because there's that kind of level of tension that is there. Lots of different kinds of tension, but the ones that just kind of make you, you'll pay for the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. It speaks to the power that movies have, and suspense thrillers do just that with with the ability that they have. Movies elicit feelings out of us. That's why a lot of people love to watch comfort movies. Whatever the comfort movie is for them, whether it's some kind of musical or some kind of rom-com, or some kind of action movie that really drives your emotions. Yeah. Movies drive feelings and emotions and elicit a lot of them out of people in different ways. And tension and suspense and horror and they they all... Suspense thrillers, they, they really... They play into that perfectly. And I think that's where they were created because... You go back to the where where films started in in the twenties, thirties, forties. I mean, they were there to make people laugh. They were there to maybe tell a, a moral story. They were there for for different things like that. They were there to entertain, and I think that's where the thriller and suspense genre was born. Then was seeing the opportunity to create uneasiness. That's the first word that I wrote down when it comes to what do these suspense thrillers have in common? Uneasiness. Where you come into certain movies going, I'm here to be comforted in some way, or I'm here to laugh, or I'm here to have my emotions run to tears, or things along those lines. 
These movies are created to have a sense of unease attached to them, where when you are watching it, you feel uncomfortable with what's going on, not knowing how this is going to play out for the characters involved and how this is all going to be resolved, right? Why would somebody want that? Who, in general, when you go to the amusement park, what's the best ride in the park? Roller coasters. What are you doing on a roller coaster? You're screaming your head off. Screaming your guts out, convinced you're about to die. But you know you're strapped into something absolutely terrifying, but under, let's hope, very safe conditions. So at the end, oh, chill, oh my good. It's like Ghostbusters, which I think was such a perfect blend between you know, sweet and scary. It was it had legitimate scary moments, but it had so much humor with it too. It played off each other so well. That's a perfect roller coaster ride because it terrifies you, especially if you're a kid like I was when it first came out. And But you have such a good time. Tension is all about really building up that tension and then letting it out and then building it back up and then letting it out. Maybe a moment of levity, maybe some comedic moment in between just to kind of let the air out of the room. Levity was the word that I was thinking of there. Yeah, And you need a little of that. It can't just be nonstop tension or you're going to have to get not go home after the movie. You have to go to some clinic somewhere and they're going to have to work on you. Oh, but there are some movies where levity (laughs) is very low on the priority list and there's going to be some of these where that's the case where there's just not a lot of that included. Ever since they cut that dance line sequence from the Silence of the Lambs, that would have really let the air out of the room, but <laughs> no. No, no. <laughs> don't don't start thinking that that, that was going to be part of the movie. But anyway, along with uneasiness, another thing that I wrote down with that, and I, I just alluded to this earlier, was that these suspense thrillers have an ability to create doubt in what the final outcome of the movie will be. Because in in a lot of movies, when you watch a lot of classic movies, you can kind of see what's coming with the final outcome. You can sort of see that it's all going to get nicely tied off with a bow, they'll live happily ever after, or things like that. There are exceptions. There's ones that where it's like, oh, it didn't go exactly how I wanted it to, like maybe Casablanca. But you're left with still an ending that makes you feel kind of warm inside with the way that it ended there. But with these movies... You genuinely don't know what the outcome is going to be you because of the lack of levity. I think if there's too much levity, sometimes you get in a comfort zone of going, oh, but it's all going to turn out okay in the end, even though I am feeling uneasy here. The more unease that you can create in these suspense thrillers, the more doubt there is in terms of how exactly is this going to turn out? Is this all going to be resolved as neatly as I want it to? Because all of a sudden now... Doubt creeps in, then maybe this isn't exactly going to go how I think it should. And there's plenty, not saying that this is the case with all of them, but there's enough that you have to notice that sometimes the good guys don't win. It doesn't turn out the way that you would like it to end. Maybe the bad guy wins. Maybe it's left to some degree of unresolved, um, especially if it's like a true life documentary. You and I have talked about unresolved stories in movies before and that it's okay it's okay it's okay to embrace a story or to have a story where the resolution is not fully mapped out then maybe there is a little bit of ambiguity in that a movie that i think of when it comes to that ability to create doubt we're going to talk a lot about alfred hitchcock today no question about it one of his early suspense films was the movie suspicion in which a woman marries this guy who ends up having these who ends up doing these rather sinister and quizzical things 
that make her wonder if he is plotting to murder her. Cary Grant is is that guy, the husband. And I think it's Joan Fontaine who's who's the woman. And she is highly suspicious of her husband throughout the movie, thinking he's going to murder me. That there's these these different things that just don't add up and it creates tons of doubt during the course of the movie of is my husband about to try to knock me off or not here and you just it's one of his earliest ones but at the same time it outlined that that process of creating doubt on what is this final outcome going to be with the movie and it just was laying the groundwork for what Hitchcock would build his directorial career off of and if you keep suspecting your spouse is going to try to off you, stop showing up every morning to the breakfast table. Put on more of a defensive stance. You never know when she's going to point us in the English muffins. So, you know, put some protection between yourself and the others. I don't think that would have worked very well for the movie, though. <laughs> it would have been a little bit boring had that been the case uh, with deciding to do that or deciding just to run away. But in any case, um, those two things really stick out. But... That also speaks to another thing. We, we've talked about individuals who are involved as part of this, and that's a big, big factor in having suspense thrillers. Highly suspicious characters. People who you are just not totally sure about. They don't seem like they are totally on the level. And by the way... Watching that, them sideways. Exactly. And that includes protagonists oh, yeah. sometimes. And that can be where some of the best thrillers exist dave where even the protagonists really give you this uneasy feeling think of the movie vertigo another hitchcock movie you're not entirely sure about even the protagonist in that movie james stewart's character because as the movie goes and he gets more manic and more obsessive you're not even even totally sure if you can get on board with with scotty that's his his nickname you're not sure if you can totally get on board with him either because he just is a bit of a shady character with the way that he goes about things. Rare is the true, you'll get a lot of black hats, absolutely, but rare is the true white hat. And there are exceptions. Clary Starling is clearly as white a hat, alabaster, as you can get. But most are some shade of gray. And not just that you're not fully sure what their motivations are. You may not be fully sure if they're a good person or a bad person. Um, can they? And trust was a really good one to bring up. Can you trust them? Are they even trustworthy at all? Even though you might be rooting for them and hope they pull out, maybe they are instead the best of two evils. Right, and or yeah, the lesser, lesser. Of two yeah, evils. there you go. Yeah, that's that, which makes it really complicated then because it it just adds to the discomfort, the the fact that it feels like you're going through this movie with less than solid footing. And then add on to it all a setting that brings in all kinds of unease of its own. Atmosphere. How is it shot? You know, that's where noirs have been able to find a subgenre and such a successful one. Because those are suspense thrillers. Noirs. Neo-noirs. And that's where they've been able to carve out a really successful run. Is because their atmosphere and their mood is just so unsettling dark places the way it's shot the camera angles and then add in the music that's where the bernard hermans of the world with the way that they are able to create mood through the music and through the score are able to make things really creepy with the way that it all factors in and then put all those elements together and you are going through an experience where you're kind of gripping 
the the sides of your seat, not expecting some kind of gore, some kind of gore, or some kind of slash factor, slasher factor like you would have in horror movies or it's jump scares, but where, like you talked about at the very beginning with that Hitchcock quote, it is the tension that is building and building and building that just has you going. I need this to be broken here and that horror movies would do it instantaneously but these movies they're going to put you through the ringer and you're going to have to grind this out for however long the movie is you can't understate the music you just you can whether we, we've talked about jaws before and they had a preview of the movie but they hadn't done the score yet that i don't know if there was a temporary score or what and it just wasn't working it just wasn't working but john williams iconic score wasn't there uh we're not i didn't add this to the list because it's more of an action superhero thing but just watch the dark knight this past week and there's almost that like electronic mosquito noise it keeps coming up and it keeps getting a little louder especially around the joker oh yeah it's it's almost his theme and so you start hearing it buzzing in the background while the cop cars are going down the road and now you know it's the it's the dark night version of it gets louder gets a little stronger it starts changing pitch a little bit you know something's up there's a bazooka you know it's coming and that builds that tension also but it also puts you in a way as soon as you hear it it almost elicits a visceral reaction yeah i equated that sound to madness with that movie because with joker there was just this element of madness and unhinged mayhem that was going on with him in that movie and that sound was something i equated with it and just the way that it was it was so off-putting and that that's the ability that these movies have is that they they are able to throw off what you expect about a movie the the comfort factor that you usually take into a movie thriller and suspense films they find ways to be able to unseat that yeah you know, and one of the things I think, some of these movies we're going to get into eventually are based on books. One of the nice things about books, you paint it in your mind. But something about the way that the movie presents it does it, I think, in a way that no reading experience ever really truly can. It adds elements. I don't ever genuinely dream or fantasize or pretend some scenario from book and I've got atmosphere with the angles and the lighting and music that just doesn't enter it to me it enters like real life you don't hear music like that in real life and that's kind of when I read what I get so you get so many more elements Jaws the book is okay Jaws the movie is wow really good and not just with those extra elements. I mean, just the way the story is constructed is better. And then, oh, yeah, there's the music. Oh, and, yeah, you get the Spielbergian touches. It is such a better experience, according to me. All right, do you have any other elements that you would add in addition to what I was mapping out there as far as what these suspense thrillers usually have attached to them? I really think one of the things we haven't said are there's just the performances. They can be so nuanced. For example, we, we've talked about this before. We'll talk about it a little bit more, but Usual Suspects is one of the best thrillers I've ever seen. When you know what the twist is, and we I, we haven't mentioned this yet. We probably should mention this now. There will probably be at some point a spoiler forthcoming. We will, if it's really new, we will 
do something to to not spoil it. If it's a movie from the fifties, we're probably going to give it away. And the and the more recent it is, the more we might protect the spoiler. But there is so when spoiler you, warning. When you hear the title of the movie, just know there there's a chance we may. If it's something you haven't seen before, there's a chance we may get into some pretty critical plot elements. Case yes. in point: the usual suspects. Here comes the spoiler. The big question of the movie is who is Kaiser Soze? This this mythical underlord character. When you find out the twist at the end of the movie, it takes a particular person. Well, I'm kind of giving it away even just by mentioning this, but you kind of learn at the end of the movie, last call, spoiler, that Kaiser Soze is presented as being this verbal kint character played by uh, Kevin Spacey. You watch his performance. You watch it the very first time, and it it is what it is. Now, once you know what the secret is, you watch that performance again, and it looks very different. It's almost as if director Brian Singer and his cinematographer and everybody else totally flipped the lights. So now it's like having a flashlight come on your face from under your chin, like telling a ghost story at the campfire versus the normal lighting you saw the first time go around. Everything seems different because you know, and you get a subtle, nuanced character like that, whether it's Anthony Hopkins and his portrayal of Hannibal Lecter, which just thinking about a scene or two, just, uh, just the hairs on the back of your neck, you get those performances, those performances that bring the dynamic quality of are they, aren't they, will they, won't they, whatever. The tension really pops almost more in this genre than any of the best dramatic pieces I can think of. That's the thing that makes The Usual Suspects such an impactful watch on its first time because Verbal Kint is a perfectly middle-of-the-road character who you can sympathize with as being a victim of watching those around him getting killed off, essentially. He's literally and then, a nobody. Yeah, and then telling his story after the fact and doing so in a way that kind of speaks to, you know... PTSD slash a little bit of, you know, kind of what's my place in all of this? What's the big deal that that you're having me in to do all of this? And, and feeling kind of threatened a little bit as well. You sympathize just enough with him when he's telling his experience while also going, you know, there's nothing really all that outstanding about this guy. It puts other characters more at the forefront. Um, most notably, I think... Um, Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, well, and and his, his character... Uh, Keaton. What's Keaton. It? Yeah, what's his first name? Or not Buster. Um, Keaton. Anyway, he um, they put they put his character really front and center, um, and and then by by the time you get to the end, all of a sudden, yeah, when the when the big truth bomb drops, now all of a sudden you're going, wow, we just got duped. You know, we all just got duped here. Those in the movie and us watching it. And yeah, it, it gets set up by having a perfectly under-the-radar character and performance, but one that left just enough subtlety in there to build to the suspension and then to the, the climax that you get. Well, even the way they made the movie, uh, you're pretty much led to believe that you're going to find out that Keaton, the character of Keaton played by Gabriel Byrne, is, is this Kaiser Soze guy. It's just a, it's a mask. And the way they film the movie, you actually have scenes where you have the Keaton character as Kaiser Soze. But that's just to kind of make a point within the movie to the point where Gabriel Byrne, who played the character, he thought he was the character of Kaiser Soze. Then he sees the premiere and realizes that that's what everyone's meant to think, but that's not the case. And it turns out it's somebody else. Wait, huh, huh? Even he got duped and he was, so to speak, the character. Yeah, because you get led to believe, and they were even telling Verbal in the movie that Dean Keaton was Kaiser Soze. And he's like, no, no, he couldn't be. But, but at the same time, he's also kind of doing enough to kind of play into the idea that 
this might be true, and yet at the same time, of course, he knows what the truth is. So yeah. it's just it just it gets perfectly teed up, set up that way. And yeah, it takes it takes nuance in performance and nuance in character to lead to all of that. Let's take a quick moment. We're going to get to talking about some of his movies, but we need to pull out a special consideration. We've talked about him before, but we've got to give a special highlight to Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense. This is his backyard we're playing in, so we got to give a little homage to the Hitch. We are going to talk about not all of his movies because you know there's only so many. We got to leave it in some others too. But he was the master. He knew how it was done, and that's how we let off this show. He had a quote, and I'm paraphrasing, where uh, it's not the anticipation, it's not the bang going off of the gun. It's the anticipation that you know it's coming. Here it comes. Here it comes. And then whether it does or it doesn't, it's that anticipation, the tension. Yeah, Hitchcock established. Such a reputation for that, that even in a movie like The Trouble with Harry, which is more of a dark comedy, you still are watching a movie like that with with this feeling of suspicion regarding a lot of the characters who are in there and going, all right, what's their angle here? What's the deal here? And yet at the same time, it's like, no, this is more of a comedic one. It's it's a dark comedy, and but at the same time... It's not his typical run-of-the-mill type of movie, but he had established such a reputation of making movies that had that angle to them that you just expect the sinister element to be in there, even though, even though despite the fact that there was a murdered character in the movie, there's more of a comedic levity about it. There's that word again, yeah. levity, and that it was different. But that was just the amount of of gravitas that he had as the master of suspense. He was good, and it's hard to find somebody. He was kind of a, an unusual character as a person, too. I mean, there's... Uh, right. Tippi Hedren was in The Birds. She was the lead actress in that. She's the real-life mother of Melanie Griffith. But there was an unusual relationship between Hitchcock and her, to the point where you know the, the Me Too movement would have come out. He was after her. And you get indications that maybe she wasn't the only one, but he she was special to him in a way that would not be smiled on now. And even there's documentaries, some that are scripted, some that are not, about the kind of guy that Hitchcock was. And while he was an amazing director as a person, he was hard to put your finger on. I mean, even people, he got a Lifetime Achievement Academy Award, and he walked up and literally said two words, thanks, thank you, and walked off. And people thought, is he mad? This is just the way he was. That was Hitch. Thank you. Thank you. Just and like that. Turned around, walked away. That was it. Everyone yeah. thought there was going to be a big speech and a big moment, and there wasn't. So he is a guy. You wonder how much of that unsettled stuff just himself found its way into the movies because of that. Interesting. Yeah, we talked at length about Hitchcock in yep. a previous episode. but So we won't go too deep. Yeah, we'll get into a lot of his movies here, but let's get into the list, Dave, and what you had with writing down some of the essential suspense thrillers that are out there i just kind of went to try to keep things together i just went alphabetical so this is in no reason other than it's alphabetical for the most part um we start with the early 90s an erotic thriller is what it was but it was well received and even if you took the sex out of it it's still a good thriller you know where we're going 1991's basic instincts we've got a name that's going to pop up a lot he kind of made a really good career of being in these thrillers michael douglas and the movie that made Sharon Stone, because Police Academy 4 couldn't cut it, so it was a couple of years after that, Basic Instinct really put her on the map. And she's I don't know if she's ever really equaled that part. Police Academy 4. She was in it. 
So this is this is a lot of ways a whodunit, but it's almost in a lot of ways like the usual suspect. Everyone is pointing at this author of these crime books, Catherine Tamal, played by Sharon Stone. And the very first scene in the movie is this sex scene, and then the girl stabs this guy to death. And it's just as it's depicted in this book, and the author is a suspect. Well, the whole thing is, well, why would I commit a murder in real life just like what I had printed in this book? Won't you think that would point a finger at me? So did she, didn't she? And this cop, Michael Douglas, has got to figure out, did she, didn't she? They kind of fall into it with one another and have this torrid affair. Meanwhile, the whole thing is, well, maybe she is, maybe she isn't. And whether she is or she isn't is slightly less than ambiguous, but it's never definitively stated. There was a sequel that is very worth missing. Yeah, we got into talking about this movie when it came to the noir and neo-noir movies that we've discussed in the past. And the femme fatale, speaking of characters who can really drive a genre, the femme fatale can really drive suspense thrillers, in particular noir movies. But again, when it comes to those characters who create that uneasiness, they are a big part of it because they they show one thing and yet their their motives and who they are might be something completely different. And you might have missed this the first time go around. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. The movie, in a lot of ways, is made to a point as an homage to the Hitchcock classic Vertigo, particularly with the Catherine Tremell character, Sharon Stone, her wardrobe is almost identical to what Kim Novak wore in Vertigo. They're both filmed in San Francisco. Um, There's a lot of similarities there. I mean, clearly Vertigo is one kind of movie. Basic Instinct is a whole other kind of movie. They're not that related. More of a hard edge. Almost more of a visual visual homage paid and so and and vertigo we might as well transition into that real quick is such a when it came out it wasn't that successful but here in the 2020s it's looked at as the masterpiece of what hitchcock had done it is a slow burn keep this in mind and it's kind of long it almost i think when it's on uh, like tmc or something it's got a it's got an intermission in it i've heard, i've seen that sometimes no vertical vertigo doesn't have an intermission i keep remembering seeing one maybe they worked it in the the show the the channel that was showing it or whatever it was but it was um it's a slow burn it's not fast doesn't have the kind of the jump scares maybe one or two that might make you jump a little bit but generally it's very moody, very atmospheric, very tense. It has two very distinct parts to it as yes. well, Vertigo does. So I know that's more toward the bottom of the list there in terms of alphabetical. But Doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, it has, it, it has two very distinct parts. Um, there's one point when a significant character dies in the course of the story, and that really ends up creating a big shift tonally, and it really impacts another one of the characters very significantly when that happens. But yes, from a visual standpoint and from creating mood, it just it is it is all of Hitchcock's hallmarks at their finest and and getting great performances out of the centerpiece two characters from James Stewart and from Kim Novak. And for James for James Stewart, it is the most maybe the most layered performance of his career. Yeah. Uh, taking the every man, the all American guy and turning into some, turning him into somebody who gives you the creeps by the end of the movie. Like by the yeah. final third of the movie, he makes you very uncomfortable, even though he is supposed to be the protagonist here. But he becomes obsessed about this gal, and he just must he must have her. That's right, and he to he ridiculous lengths essentially remakes a woman into her image. But then there's a lot more to it than that that you end up finding out. 
at the end. And at the center of it, you have this this sort of MacGuffin of the, the vertigo that he is diagnosed with at the very beginning of the movie and that the title is known for. But it ends up becoming sort of this this outward symbol of an inward greater issue that festers and manifests itself in him as the movie progresses and as he becomes obsessive and many many feel that this movie and that that his character there it's it's almost like Hitchcock's look within his own movie making soul of the way that movies are crafted and the way that there's the desire for the perfect person to capture your films and your movies including Kind of a, a self-assessment on the Hitchcock blonde in and many I, ways. And I love the opening sequence. It's almost James Bondian before there even was a With James the title Bond movie. Credits, oh, yeah. yeah. This movie, what was that year? 1958. James Bond had yet to make a movie. But this was a very James Bond opening sequence. And the score from Bernard Herrmann is just spectacular. Hypnotic at yes, times, too. Yes. All right. Now we'll go back to the towards the top of the list. There's an original movie of this version. Uh, Robert Mitchum is in it, and uh, ah, but it's the remake that I think is far superior. And everyone from the original uh, shows up at some point in this as an homage. This is a Martin Scorsese movie, but it has it's not like any other Scorsese movie. It's got De Niro, it's got Nick Nolte, it's got Jessica Lange. The 1991 remake, Cape Fear, is. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of like one word to sum it up, and it isn't there. It's crazy. Maybe the the, the best word. For the it. original was chilling too, though. I have I have not seen the 1991 version. I've seen the original, and man, Robert Mitchum terrifies you in that movie. He is so creepy. Oh, and anyway. De Niro takes the part. And De Niro, who in real life is a method actor, you got to imagine what he did. He messed up his teeth so bad, and he didn't get it fake teeth. He paid some guy a lot of money to mess up his teeth did the part, and then paid him a whole lot more to fix his teeth and make him look nice again. Uh, He's like a version of De Niro you've never seen before. And there are scenes in the movie that are genuinely unsettling and uncomfortable, Um, but it's exceptionally well done and well-crafted and done in a very noir way, almost to a point where it's, I don't think surrealistic is the right word, but there's moments where the film actually turns into a negative image of itself right before your eyes just to kind of, it's got moments that are just kind of skewy, but to have De Niro and Scorsese together in a way that is not like they've been together before is really something. And Spielberg was actually circling this movie for a while before, hey, Marty, you should do this. Uh, It's a fabulous movie. Yeah, it's a story that plays on everyday fears people have in in relation to things like stalkers or intimidation you know doing things like that and people just creating that kind of fear-based living of you know i i think i think somebody's kind of obsessing over me here and and all that comes with that but then playing on it in the very worst corners and ways and this is going to come out of left field, but The Simpsons did a great parody of it, too. <laughs> they, Worth checking they out. They absolutely did, yes, involving Sideshow Bob. Let's stick with uh, more of this. The Departed, 2006. What an all-star cast. Jack Nicholson, front and center. DiCaprio, Matt Damon. Uh, oh, who else wasn't in this movie? It was great, and that's another... It's, it's just... It is so layered. It is the closest to an action, maybe, oriented Godfather movie. I think I can think of. It's a modern version of The Godfather, sort of, but not really. And it's a twist. You've got an informant with the police and a bad guy 
who, unbeknownst to one another, almost switch places. So you've got an informant in this mob group, and you've got a member of the mob who now joins the police force. So they yeah. can kind of inform on one another what's going on, but without knowing about one another. And they're hunting for each other without as knowing. well. Yeah. Without knowing it. Yeah, and you've got Jack Nicholson's character at the center. Uh, what I love is how layered that supporting yes. cast is with just amazing people who were kind of beneath that trio at the center and then you have all these other supporting characters Mark Wahlberg Martin Sheen is in it as well and then you've got Alec Baldwin Vera Farmiga they they have it's a really really fantastic group of of people who they have surrounding that center trio who's who really pilots it along and you kind of you're rooting for the good guy slash bad guy slash good guy and it's hard to really know who you're going to go for in this movie because nobody that wins really wins and no matter no matter who loses you lose too this is one of those movies where if your dad comes over to the house and it's kind of a rainy day and you're going to put on a movie, The Departed, you can't do much worse than that. It's a great movie. Probably plays well close to Thanksgiving, something tells me. And it builds toward quite an explosive climax, too. We're getting back to Michael Douglas. This was a movie from the mid-late 80s that um, Tom Hanks put it really well. It scared the pants back on America. Fatal Attraction. Oh, man. 1987. Glenn Close is in there. It, you know, you're referencing Sleepless in Seattle, aren't you? Even more than that, this movie saved a lot of marriages. Apparently, it's it's a thing in marriages where sometimes you get complacent, you get the itch, things aren't right, and you have a thought about maybe stepping out in your marriage. Oh, just this one time, it'll be fine, and you have an affair, and everything will be back to normal. What happens when who you step out with doesn't just want to be a one and done and not just maybe continue a relationship, but they're not liking the fact that you just kind of want to use them and move on to the level of uh, crazy. Obsession. More than There's that. There's that word again, obsession. More than that, crazy. This movie is famous for having an alternate ending, so if you catch it when it's on Netflix or something, you might miss that. But the alternate ending was the, the original ending was the non-Hollywood ending where it was left ambiguous and uh, the, the Glenn Close, Close's character kills herself. And Michael Douglas' character is arrested for this, although she'd left these tapes. And so there, it's implied that they're going to get him out of jail because there's proof that he didn't do it. The studio said, no, we got to give it a, a real shock-bang ending. So they reshot the ending. Glenn Close was mad about that, but she went along with it. And it was much more of a Hollywood ending where the wife shoots the Glenn Close character in the tub. And there's that very Hollywood ending. But it's a complicated story. It's straightforward. And any guy that had a thought about, well, you know, my secretary on this business trip, <laughs> yeah, they thought long and hard and twice after watching Fatal Attraction, credited for saving a great many movies, or a great many marriages in the late 80s and early 90s when that was still quite vogue. By scaring them. Yeah, Adrian Lynn, great director, and that was a, a good one. Here's a great movie. It almost This is almost a horror movie, but it's such a good suspenseful movie. Have you ever seen Frailty? No, I don't think so. You would like this. It's very Stephen King-esque. It stars and is directed by Bill Paxton. Interesting. Matthew McConaughey is in it, and it's about a serial killer. One night, this guy walks into an FBI office and says, I know who this such-and-such killer is. So this FBI agent is driving him to somewhere, and in the back seat, he's retelling these tales from the past told in a flashback when he and his brother were young kids. And they're looking for, in the movie, what's called the God's Hand Killer. 
And you're here, you're seeing the story told in flashback as he's talking to the FBI in the back of the car, Matthew McConaughey. And uh, I, I don't want to give too much away. I'll leave it at that. But um, there are some twists and turns that you don't see coming in. It's a slow burn. And it's just unnerving and it's tension. And great kid actors. Kid actors sometimes, I hate to say it, can wreck a movie. Not here. Good. They really do a good job. And Bill Paxton is not really well known as a director. But he nails this. Nails it. It came out in 2002. Very appropriate for Halloween, but it's much more of a of a thriller, suspenseful, with horror elements. Slow burns, I think, are perfect for, for thrillers, for suspense movies, because, again, we talked about tension earlier. You need to have time to be able to build the tension and to get some kind of payoff at the end. People just want it to be kind of immediately in their face. Well, that's where horror movies can take care of that. Yes. You need to have the tension. You there's, need to have the tension built up. There's so a lot I, of between the lines here. I will loan it to you. You will like It's very Stephen King-esque. All right. But not. Very, very good. For, uh, frailty. Here's another one. Back to Michael Douglas. He's He kind of made a good career out of being uh, either the bad guy-ish in these movies. And here you don't really know what to think of him. The Game. Came out in 1997, Michael Douglas and Sean Penn. He, uh, Michael Douglas is the most bland, unsmiling guy in this movie. Just doesn't have a zest for life anymore. It's just gone. And his brother signs him up for this game for his birthday. But then it starts to shift into this whole, is this real? Is this not real? And all of a sudden, he's persecuted and people are after him. Is this part of this game? Is this game actually a group of bad guys? And did they get this information on me to exploit me? And what's going on? It's, you don't know which way is up. One of those kind of movies. And so you're trying to, almost through the perspective of his character, trying to survive it, trying to get through it and figure out what the heck is going on until you get to the end and all things are revealed. And I won't be specific about that because if you spoil the end, it kind of ruins it. And Sean Penn plays his younger brother's much smaller part. But Michael Douglas knows how to bring tension into his roles. Big time. He can be a charming guy, too. The American president and uh, Jewel of the Nile. And he can really be a tenseful guy. We'll put it that way. The game, highly recommended, and David Fincher directed it, and he knows how to do I that. I see. So yeah. very oh, stylishly he done. He definitely does, yeah. Here's another David Fincher movie, Gone Girl. This one came out 2014. It's one of the newer ones, Ben Affleck, Roseman yeah. Pike. Uh, you're married to this well-known subject of children's books, you know, and her parents write these books, and it's based on her, but the marriage all of a sudden maybe isn't quite as what it looks to be, and one day it looks like you've killed her. And there's a lot of evidence to support it. And so your character, Ben Affleck's character, you're not really sure if he did it or not, but you're also pretty sure right off the bat that he probably didn't. But then you find out parallel, this woman has faked her death. And she is um, just kind of wanted to get away. And she's kind of nothing like what this character is that's really based on her. It's in some ways inspired by real events, but not entirely. Um, and so you get these two different stories that are connected. You, he's trying to prove his innocence. And now you know he's innocent because she is still out there. And she actually shows you in the course of how this all works out, what she did, how she did, and how sadistic she is. Um, we did mention spoilers. Yes. It is dark. It's gritty. It's one Very, of those, very layered. Movie. Yes. It's one of those movies you want to take a shower after you watch it just because of the depth of humanity and how depraved it can get. Ugh. Particularly where her character goes, she is messed up. Um, we will leave it at that. Very well worth seeing. Uh, this one you can talk of. You know about this one. We've kind of touched base on it because it is a Christopher Nolan movie, and we just did an episode of Christopher Nolan not long ago, so we won't do a deep dive. Inception. Yeah, Great movie. Yeah, Inception 
is certainly a suspense thriller movie. I, I think it has less of an edge compared to some of these other ones because there are so many other things and other elements and even other subgenres that you could attach on to this movie that that sort of overwhelm. It's it's a movie that is in many ways about the senses because of what you are seeing and the the visuals that that really grab your attention and make you go wow. But at the center of it too there is this this race to plant an idea in somebody's mind. And and again when it comes to layered characters, I mean Cobb who is the central character played by Leonardo DiCaprio is a very flawed individual and you figure that out as the movie progresses that this guy has all these rules for mind extraction and for when it comes to planting things in the mind he has all these rules and yet he breaks a lot of them and you see why that's the case throughout the course of the movie and you you start to see a lot of the complexity that's there but then you have the fact that he is trying to complete this one final job to be able to get home and that is what sort of creates the basis for for what this all is built around so a lot of tension though it's a lot of breaking in and trying to break back out and will yes. they won't they and uh, it is very much when you talked about earlier the way that that these movies can sometimes become more so of the action genre inception yeah. is a big part of that is is a great example of that and yet at the same time you have a very tension-based story that goes on here too Next movie, we've talked about this before, so we won't do a deep dive, but I've got such a deep love for Jaws. It is such a good movie. Of course. We've talked about it before. It is... It touches the fringes of horror, but I Absolutely. think I think thriller, suspense thriller, is very apt for Jaws, yes. It's almost more suspenseful than a horror movie. I think it wins in the suspense more than horror, but clearly it has those elements. They're there. Um, we won't do a deep dive on it, obviously, but... Everyone, I think, at this point has seen it. Um, there's a reason why this franchise hasn't been touched since the late 80s. Uh, not only does Spielberg have some claim on that, um, but you're only going to screw it up and make it worse. The sec- the first sequel, Jaws 2, is a worthy follow-up. For- stop after that. Uh, but as far as any of the uh, shark movies go, Jaws is it. It is, the cr- it is the champion and then some. The standard. We'll leave it at that. Great cast, great everything, great score. It's almost perfect. It's just fantastic. It's another Spielberg movie. Another one based on a book that went just crazy. It's almost sci-fi, but thriller, I think, is the best way to describe Jurassic Park. Yeah, 1993, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, bringing dinosaurs back here into the now with cloning technology. And, of course, things are going to run amok. Exactly. And you're not going to throw a T-Rex on the big screen the whole movie. You're you're not going to do that. They... They did such a great job within the movie of creating tension surrounding the appearance of the Tyrannosaurus for the first time. And you see that really well with the fact that it doesn't at least initially it doesn't at least initially come and get the the bait that it's supposed to get when it's supposed to eat. But then when does the T-Rex appear? It appears when everything is going wrong and when it could not get much worse because then it's able to break out of the pen, it's able to go after them, it's able to do all of that and it sets up some iconic moments of just sheer terror that come from it then. But not enough to say, oh, it's a horror movie for certain. It is definitely more of an adventure thriller, but it's got those horror elements in there too. But again... Oh, for creating suspense and tension, and it builds toward, and then you've got the, 
you've got factoring the, in the Velociraptors as well, and they, man, talk about tension at the very end of the movie as well when the kids are besieged, essentially, and trying to escape. Yeah, there's, or, or when you've got the, in the bunker as well, when they're trying to get out of the bunker, so many moments where they are able to create atmosphere and mood and terror on these prehistoric animals being in modern times and all that comes with that of the idea that Maybe you could think of, but did you ever think about if you should do it? You know, there's a really good line that you just started hitting on that Jeff Goldblum dubbed. You had all the, I'm paraphrasing it, but you had all the ability to do it. Nobody stopped to think whether you should do it. Exactly. We talk about that with sequels a lot. With which there have been, I think there's six of these movies now, Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies. Some of them probably should have been Ironic, right? Yeah. Yeah. But Michael Crichton wrote the book, and uh, the book is also a very good read. Uh, But the movie, I think, beats it just a little bit because the imagery that you get just it's not in the book so it's just jurassic park go see it misery 1990 this is a stephen king adaption i think it's my favorite stephen king adaption rob reiner directed this and he had just done well princess bride he just done another stephen king uh stand by me which i wouldn't really call a thriller uh but boy misery sure is you've got james Conn as an author and he's just finished writing his newest book, part of a franchise of this character, and he gets trapped in a snowstorm, and he gets rescued by, just turns out to be, his biggest fan, played by Kathy Bates. And then she reads this manuscript and doesn't like it, and it really takes a turn. Have you ever seen Misery? I haven't. No. Oh, you, I shouldn't even say any more, just for your benefit. This is absolute tension. It is the least... Uh, paranormal, maybe you could say, of any Stephen King where there's some force. Well, why is this evil? Why is this bad? Why is it possessed? This is, you know, theoretically quite possible, you know, and that was what makes it even more creepy. Um, it's an exceptionally small cast. It's more or less just two people with a couple of cameos by other people as they go. And you've got, I forget the name of the actor, and I apologize for that, who's the local middle-of-nowhere cop that's just, he's aware the author's gone missing, but isn't suspecting, you know, he's just suspecting he got trapped in the snowstorm and they're going to find him in the spring dead, you know, but he's not. And so nobody knows he's missing. Nobody knows where he could possibly be. Uh, you're in the mountains of what looks like Colorado. It is tension du jour. And who would have thought that you know, Rob Reiner, Meatball from All in the Family, or Meathead rather, could do it. And he, what an amazing director he is. So, Misery, great movie. No Country for Old Men. Oh, man. 2007, what a great all-star cast. So, Javier Bardem's role is looked at by psychologists as maybe the best on-screen depiction of a psychopath. That's right. Ever depicted. Does not care. Just doesn't care. He's got a coin, almost like Harvey Two-Face, and he'll flip it, and if it goes up one way or the other, he's going to kill you or maybe not. You're going to win. What am I going to win? And with a blank stare pretty much all the way through. Oh, boy. This this movie is what made him. And it's got a great cast. Josh Brolin is in there. Tommy Lee Jones is in there. Uh, And it really just kind of breaks down to stumbling across money at a drug deal gone bad, and you just take it, and you find out that money is being followed. And whoever touches it basically is cursed, I guess you could say, because this guy's after you. It's bleak. It's bleak. And it's yeah. it's not the most triumphant ending either. But no. It's... And the ending has been the subject of much discussion as well, because there is a lot of ambiguity involved with that ending, for better or for worse in this case, as far as what does all this mean at the end with those final lines of dialogue and everything. But 
Yeah, that's that's another movie where tension is very much on the menu and westerns westerns and their canvas that come with them, they are they are subject to much tension then. It really is a, a modernish western. It's not like horseback western, but it's definitely a western. Go to go back to Hitchcock here just cuz that's what alphabetical does north by northwest. Cary oh, Grant, yeah. we got to get him in there. This is one of your favorites. I think I should let you take the lead on this. Yeah, one. north by northwest. It's it's a really good one. Set the template for even what you see in some James Bond movies, like for instance from Russia with Love, it, there's you really see the template a lot there, and it's it's a classic Hitchcock case of every man who gets blamed for something that he did not do, and then all of a sudden is at the center of being on the run, and that's what Cary Grant's character Roger Thornhill faces in the midst of it, with a possible femme fatale involved with Eva Marie Saint's character, and then. All kinds of conspiracy and international espionage involved with this, too, uh, with the characters they run into with James Mason and with his crew of of people that they've got. But very sinister folks in there. And, like, I, I think of the tension, and when I think of this movie and the tension that gets created by it, I think of the, the stare of Martin Landau and his character in the movie and that the way that he looks very cross and down at you. And that's the kind of feeling that you get as far as, all right, this has a little bit of an entertaining element to it, this story, and yet at the same time, you have just enough suspension here that it, you really feel for Roger Thornhill, but you also do feel that this guy and his life are somewhat in jeopardy here, and he didn't deserve any of this, but he's just extremely unlucky. But it produces some amazing, iconic sequences, including the plane chasing after him there in a countryside field in Illinois, and you get all these these different moments that that are produced out of the course of this guy who is on the run and having a really bad couple of days. It's funny that some of these tension-filled movies have had such good lampoon spoofs. The Simpsons have been in here. Family Guy makes a pretty good couple of spoofs based on North by Northwest. The Mount Rushmore sequence at the end, it's iconic. And it's funny to see how you can find that really thin barrier between tension and when Family Guy gets it, uh, humor. And that's Hitchcock. It's one of the best that he ever did. I'm a big, big fan of that. Love that movie. There was another remake of a Hitchcock movie that I've seen both, and I think the remake is particularly good. Dial M for Murder is a Hitchcock one that was remade in 1998 called A Perfect Murder. Michael Douglas is back. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is his young trophy bride, and for whatever reason, he's decided he's had enough with his wife and he's going to kill her and basically take her inheritance. Maybe the money isn't coming in as well as he'd like, and he wants to, well, if I kill her, then I'm going to get all this money. And so he comes up with this, what turns out to be a perfect murder. Viggo Mortensen, one of his earlier film roles, is in this, and that's who he's kind of framing as it's her boyfriend. She's having an affair, unbeknownst to him. Yeah, that was at the center of the original as well, and it is part of what goes into the motive behind trying to to do that yep and david suchet who i can never pronounce who's the the the, the, the detective's name he's in the newer uh, uh, haunting in venice death hercule poirot there we go he's played that role for so long now he's playing a similar role as the detective trying to figure out this uh would-be murder that happens earlier in the movie very very tense i think is it David Fincher direct this one too? I could be wrong about that, um, but it's an excellent movie, and it's certainly based off you know the Hitchcock Dial M for Murder in an updated way. Um, tense, very very good, highly recommended. Uh, the Prestige. We've touched oh, yeah. base on this with Christopher Nolan. We won't go too deep, but when you got dueling magicians, 
around the turn of the century, and by that I mean like the start of the 1900s, late 1800s, that turn of the century, um, it's kind of got a, not, gothic's probably not the right term for it, but it is, it's got a really good vibe around it, and you just don't know where this is going. And it's another one of those, well, what is the real story here? You don't find out until all these reveals. A cascade of reveals, pretty yes. much, at the end of the movie. We won't go too deep. We've, we just recently talked about it. But a great cast. You've got, of course, at the center of it, Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. And in the wings, you've got amazing cast. You've got Michael Caine's got a part in it. You've got uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson is in there. Rebecca Hall's in there. Great cast. Great everything. Christopher Nolan, well worth and very tense. Immense tension. Atmospheric tension. Very. Huge. By the way, David Bowie as well yeah. in there too in a rather significant role as and it Nikola did a good Tesla. Job. Andy Serkis as well. Yeah. Enormous tension. The stakes just continue to get raised more and more as the movie progresses where this rivalry becomes dangerous. And that's where the suspense just gets so heightened. And even the moments where things lighten up for a moment, all of a sudden something happens where the rivalry just goes to another level again between these two magicians and it all just keeps stacking up and the revelations that come out of it all in the midst of it yeah it just really really adds on it's interesting that almost the same time the illusionists came out and they're very similar movies it's interesting how somebody gets an idea and that just morphs into two different movies Mm -hmm. not quite the same but pretty darn close this is another next one uh going back to hitchcock that certainly is in the horror realm but it's You can make the debate whether it's more of a thriller suspense or a horror movie, but we're talking the iconic 1960 Psycho. Anthony Perkins, uh, Vera Miles is in this movie. There we go. Vera Miles. Janet Leigh is in this. This, and we've talked about this before. You've got Alfred Hitchcock. I say it as best. I think this is one of my two favorite movies that he did. This movie. Yes, you could put it in the thriller category. You could also say it was the first slasher horror yeah. film as well. That The very, very beginning yeah. of that genre, I think, was right here with that iconic scene in the shower. And, and all that that then created as far as a new genre and the beginning of it there. But yeah, talk about tension. Talk about... Uh, on the fringes of the the crazy as well with Anthony Perkins and yeah the Bates Motel and all that comes with that yep and what was the most iconic thing about it is that you didn't know what the movie was about it starts out as being one thing about it. basically you're embezzling from your job and you're on the run with this money and you maybe you're having a change of heart and then a rainy night you got to stop driving you pull into this motel and the movie absolutely turns on its ear. The lead star that you're believing is is Janet Lee, who is the real life mother of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, married to Tony Curtis at the time, who she, at the time was a huge star, and she's going to be the star of this movie. And all of a sudden, she gets killed off in a memorable scene that we all know, whether you've ever seen the movie or not, the shower scene. And now it's a completely different movie. And even the point where the money that she stole, you're thinking maybe he knew about the money and that's, nope, he just, you know, throwing away everything from the crime scene. It, it ends up at the bottom of a pond. It wasn't about the it. money at all. There was your MacGuffin. It's, 
It's a fabulous movie, and if you go into it thinking one thing, you're going to find your expectations subverted to some point. We, a lot of us know what a lot of the twists and turns are going to be at this point. The movie was made in 1960, um, but it's still a fabulous movie. Uh, and the first sequel is also a worthy follow-up. Um, not the same. Stick with the, we got to stick with the, uh, Hop, the Hitchcock here. Rear Window, I think, is my favorite of all the Hitchcock movies. 1954, a much less creepy James Stewart than we had with Vertigo. Grace Kelly one of the most beautiful women of all time ever. So you're a photographer, James Stewart, you break your leg, and apparently back in the 50s, breaking your leg was much bigger of a deal than it is now because everyone's still walking around with broken legs. But back then, nope, you're pretty much homebound and just stuck, and he lives in this big apartment kind of complex. And the way they did that, all that was built in a giant, giant, giant soundstage. That's they right. built all of it. It's just amazing. And then one night... He's kind of voyeuristic, and he's just being entertained by all the random goings-on of all of his neighbors that he shares windows with in this big backyard courtyard. But, huh, wonder what's going on in that apartment over there. Maybe this guy killed his wife, and now it becomes an amateur sleuth night. Did he? Didn't he? Now they're finding evidence to maybe support it, and Raymond Burr, who would, uh, I think just after this, he would become Perry Mason. I think it was just before or just after this movie. That it was around that time. Right yeah. about that time. So it was interesting. It's And I, I'm i not going to spoil whether he did or he didn't, but it's been remade a couple of times, but this is the best. Yeah, there's a lot of suspicion, too, of are, are you sure you're seeing this as well? He's got this detective friend who highly doubts him, but then he also, have his, he also has his his fashion icon girlfriend in, in Grace Kelly and her character who – it needs to be sold on a little bit, but then once she is, she's she's kind of on board. But yeah, it's again a really good one in terms of creating tension and building toward uh, a rather rapid climax at the end. It's funny we've, we're talking a lot of love for Hitch, but we've got another. Not only Michael Douglas keeps showing up as one of the better actors in this genre, but another director that we're talking about yet again. David Fincher is back with Seven. This came out in 1997. Oh, Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt. <sighs> You've got another serial killer that's killing in the inspiration of what are known as the seven deadly sins, wrath and anger and lust and all of these. This is a movie I'm sure you've not seen. So I have seen pieces of it. Okay. I'm familiar with okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So you've got Freeman and Pitt, they're detectives. One's on his way out and about ready to retire. Another guy is kind of cocky and not sure of himself, and he's on the way up. And they got to solve this. And this is grisly and it's graphic. It's, yes. it's kind of difficult to watch it. Visually points. visceral. And it is very connected. And whoever is doing this is exceptionally methodical. And you can tell in some of these cases, some of these murders have been call them in progress for roughly a year. And it starts to become a little bit of a cat and mouse game. And there's a twist at the end that I'm not going to spoil. Um, but seven is, it's a tough one to watch, but it's a really good one to watch. And if you want to watch some really good tension in a thriller environment, but this also certainly crosses into horror territory. Uh, and some of the visuals are very, very graphic and just some of what it leaves you with is movie will not soon leave your memory. Yeah. There are some of these thrillers that are PG 13 based type thrillers. This one is R based hard R. Yeah. So, but highly recommended. We've talked about this already, so we're just going to mention it in passing. The Silence of the Lambs, we've mentioned it many times. 1991, it was one of the few that just swept the Oscars. It won Best Picture, Best Director, uh, both actor and actress. 
It was big. Jonathan Demi directed it. It's, uh, you know, the Hannibal Lecter character. It is spectacular. You know we love it. We've talked about it a lot. We're just going to touch base and move on, but it is awesome. Next movie is absolutely an action movie, but it is not because of the action sequences as much as just what the story is. It is so basic. And it, nobody thought this was going to be any good or was going to work, and it revived a career of Bill and Ted with Keanu Reeves on a speeding bus with a new face <laughs> in Sandra Bullock's Speed. came out in 1994. Its, its plot line is so basic, but it works. It is capturing literally lightning in a bottle to the point they almost tried to redo it, but on a cruise ship for Couldn't the next be done. movie, cannot be done. I think it was just the perfect ingredient of things coming together. That just the the script and the tension was absolutely there. Great chemistry. Uh, Dennis Hopper is in there. It's a fabulous movie. Great tension. More action oriented, but it's certainly a suspenseful movie. Yeah, definitely. Got to give it some pups. Another similar movie, Taken. 2008, it revived yes. the career of Liam Neeson, and almost every movie he's made since then has been some version or sequel directly of the Taken mold. It's basic. Its premise is, I don't know about this. It looks like it's almost direct-to-video, but holy moly, does it work. It really, really works. Yeah, it's an action kidnapping movie. Yeah, it is very much an action-based movie, but at the same time, it is thriller, and there's a lot of it involved with the stakes, and yeah, and you get Liam Neeson in the kind of role that was just perfect for him in terms of that action guy. Speaking of kind of action, but also much more heavy a on the drama. A man of a particular set of skills. Yes, a particular set of skills. I will find you. The Untouchables. 1987 all-star cast, loosely based on true events. It really takes some liberties. Uh, you have Kevin Costner, you have Sean Connery, Robert De Niro, and the list goes on. Great cast. And it's based on uh, 1930s-era prohibition in Chicago, and you had Al Capone running all this liquor, and you weren't supposed to do that back then. You couldn't drink back in the days. So there was a special division of the police department. They were going to go after Capone, led by Elliot Ness. This is true. This is what really happened. This movie is a bit sensationalized, but it's not completely away from fiction, or nonfiction, I should say. Brian De Palma directed it um, about how they're going to finally bring down Al Capone. And of course, we do know it didn't come down to some big, giant thing. They got him on income tax evasion. It was like next to nothing for all the stuff that Al Capone had done. That's what they got him on was was income tax evasion. This is uh, a popcorn movie uh, based on real life, but it would take that with a big grain of salt. It's a wonderful show, and it's huh. very suspenseful. Even a big the, the scene at the train station at the Popcorn end, you've movie. got the shootout on the train steps. This baby carriage is going. It's a hugely suspenseful part, and uh, we'll just kind of leave it at that. To the point even Naked Gun spoofed it. So that's that good. The Untouchables, 1987. There's been a lot of different versions of that. We've touched upon The Usual Suspect. We've talked about Vertigo. We will finish it with another one that's based on real life. David Fincher, one more time, uh, from 2007, Zodiac. Based very accurately in this case on a real event. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, they're the big three, but there's a lot of well-known actors and actresses in it. Great all-star cast, very much based on the 19, late 60s, early 70s, the Zodiac Killer in the San Francisco area. But this is one of those, in real life, they never caught the guy. There is no ultimate resolution to this. 
There's strong suspects, and one in particular as far as the movie points to that a lot of people believe is probably the guy that did it. But the movie, like real life, doesn't have a definitive ending to it. Um, It's a slow burn. It did not do well at the box office because it is a dark movie. It's a long movie. It's a serial killer movie, and it doesn't really have a true ending to it. But it's really good. Mm -hmm. It's extremely accurate. Very, very accurate. So it's almost like you could almost show it in a documentary class. Not entirely some things are made up and fictionalized, but for the most part, yeah. It's exceptionally well done, well, well acted, very, very tense movie. I would call it a drama thriller more than anything else. Not really all that horror-esque because you're on the trail of this guy. You're not really seeing it up front and center. There's a moment or two, but it's a fabulous movie, and it has really come around into its own in the 15, almost 20 years since it was made in 2007. The appreciation for this movie continues to grow. These are just, and there's many, many more. I We could have gone down this list forever in a month. but Yeah, if you do a courtesy Google search, you will find a lot of great options out there. And what's cool is suspense and thriller is a genre that can be applied to multiple kinds of movies. We've already talked about that today with, with a lot of these different movies. Some are more action-based some are more noir, some touch the the fringes of horror without really getting into it. There are a few that I think of. We we talked about this in our noir episode in the past, but Double Indemnity comes to yep. mind from the 1940s. I mean, you take Barbara Stanwyck, who had been known for a little bit more of a screwball character that she would play, and you put her into the femme fatale role, and essentially that's what launched the femme fatale, was her character there alongside Fred McMurray in that movie. The Manchurian Candidate's one of my all-time favorites. The original, the 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 remake was really good as well, but the original just cuts to the core so hard, and the suspense that's involved in it, the the why that's involved with all of this, and then the big big surprise that you get in the course of that movie, like all of it adds up to moments that just really really. Uh, hammer home on your emotions in that movie from 1962 it's tremendous and then you can think of other movies like um the, Fre- the french connection came to oh, mind yeah. as another one as far as like thrillers and and being in the suspense category crime and thrillers and suspense they go together very very well there's a lot of crime-based movies that you picked up on here dave and and mentioned within this Something about crime, really, you can take a lot of angles to a crime-based story, and it'll work well for this. There's a lot of movies that just, I'm almost slapping myself, I left them off the list, but they were all, I mean, In the Line of Fire, it's one of the best non-dirty, hairy Clint Eastwood movies out there, and it's a fabulous movie, and a bunch of others. I could just slap myself for leaving them off the list, but at some point, the list has to end. Yeah. Um, So, there is a whole lot that we didn't mention, that are worthy of mention, absolutely, and then some, go see what interests you, and uh, tension movies are so much fun, and a lot of times they might leave you with a good conclusion, and others like Zodiac, it's unconclusive and leaves you feeling a little unsettled, and they just unsettled just enough versus, say, Seven, where you're kind of disturbed for a little bit after the time. Um, it's what you like. It's what you want to feel, and if you do like the roller coaster in the park and you like to scream in a good, fun, safe environment, thrillers and horror movies, if you want to go a little deeper down that path of darkness, you certainly can. Um, and with Halloween coming up or any time of the year, thrillers and suspense sometimes they could be like horror light and other times they're right in the thick of it with anybody else that's right i think that's a good place to leave it off of and to get off the ride for today for rick and nick talk flicks which is sponsored by the bemidji theater on highway 2 just down from the bemidji airport where you can catch 
films that maybe will fit this category that'll be down the road to get to watch. But I think a pretty good place to leave it in terms of a list and in terms of ideas. Those suspense movies, those thrillers, those are good ones. If you don't quite want to go into the horror realm this fall, these are some good ones to sort of touch around the fringes of that. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. I'm Dave Brooks. I'm Joel Hoover. And we will see you at at the the movies. movies.